questions I must answer before I die. And once again, another cream puff is being served up for your faithful pastor. Where do I go when I die? Wow, that's an easy one, huh? We've covered some interesting ones, haven't we? Uh, Why do I exist? What's wrong with the world? Why can't we get along? And now, where do I go when I die? Now, we're going to continue the story of Lazarus, which deals with life and death. So I want to invite you again to turn to our sermon text as I read the second part of this scripture. You may recall that Lazarus has become sick and has died, and Jesus is now going to the tomb to deal with this problem, this issue of Lazarus. So I take up the reading again from verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. She told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is looking for, asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have always heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said this, Jesus uh, called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus did come out. And Jesus said, take off his grave clothes and let him go. The word of the Lord. Well, I've reached a milestone in my life. I think it was two weeks ago that I had my 40th birthday. How about that? 40 years old. Now, some of you are going, wow, this pastor is a spring chicken. Well, maybe so, but I'm not feeling like a spring chicken these days because I'm entering the second half of my existence. You know, 40 is kind of that thing where they always talk about, well, it's all downhill from here, isn't it? Over the top. And 40 is an interesting date because you get a chance to look back at your life and look ahead. 
I was thinking, and I feel kind of a little bit like the Hyundai I had in college. Remember I told you about my faithful Hyundai? Real great car until it reached 60,000 miles. Now Hyundais are great cars, but back then they were horrible cars. And all of a sudden my Hyundai began to fall apart right in front of me. And so all of a sudden now with age 40, I don't know if it's in my head or not, but everything's starting to creak a little bit, moving a little bit slower. You know, I've started to drink a little hot milk before I go to bed just to kind of look the part. Well, I've reached 40, but then I got another slap in the face. I went to my doctor. Routine physical checkup. Well, do the blood test, do everything. Calls me back in and he says, guess what? I've got high cholesterol. I said, that's impossible. It's impossible. He's like, look, here's the test right here. You're not super high, but you're high. I said, wait a second, I'm, I'm a fit guy. You know, I run, I'm a thin guy, blah, 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 blah. He's like shaking his head. He's like, what you have is most likely genetic. It's just part of who you are. And the older you get, the more the issues start to come. Wait a second. You know, time flies, doesn't it? Feels like just yesterday I was 20. And you know, I'm going to turn my head and I'm going to be 60. You know, some of the folks who are older in the congregation can track with me where in an instant, where did all the time goes? And death isn't something we like to talk about. It's something we like to avoid, but we're constantly trying to find a way. How do we stop time? How do we turn back the clock? I was on a flight this week with my wife, and she was reading a magazine. I was kind of glancing over on it, and I was fascinated with all of the ads I was seeing in it because all of them had to do with staying younger. The impossible gets closer every day. Now crack the code to younger acting skin. Youth regenerating skin care. The DNA of better health that goes on and on and on, trying to find a way to turn back the time, to stop the clock. The reality is in our culture, death used to be as much a part of life as everything else. Some of you who are older can remember that in our ag- agrarian society, that death used to be something that happened in our house. Grandma and grandpa would get old and the doctor would come and there was nothing that could be done for them and they would die in a room in uh, your house. It was just a part of life. But now death is something that we like to not talk about. We like to kind of squirrel away and hide away. As a pastor, I get to go to the hospital a lot and you know, uh, visit with some folks and it's so interesting when you walk in a hospital because right there are cheery faces and gleaming glass and steel and wood and waterfalls and it's beautiful and serene. But you know, if you walk back deeper into that hospital and you get deeper into the catacombs, you realize that there's a much grimmer struggle that's going on. Life versus death, winner take all. Death is a part of life. The reality is we all must face death. Death is part of life. We're all 100% terminal at some point or another. And the, the truth of the matter is we can't have peace until we come to a conclusion, where do I go when I die? We can't truly find uh, life and experience life as it's meant to be lived until we can have peace with that answer. But what if we did have peace? What if we knew where we were going when we died? What if we had certainty in our hearts? That would affect all the way that we lived our life. We could live our life with peace and encouragement and excitement and maybe even purpose if we had a greater understanding about what our life and this world was all about. 
Well, why I'm excited about talking here is if you go out into the world, you can't find this answer. Where do I go when I die? If you look to the media, you won't find the answer. If you look to the schools, you won't find the answer. We must find this answer in the church, and we must find the answer in the scriptures. And here is the answer that the scripture gives us to the question, where do I go when I die? That Jesus is the only one in the world who is Lord over death. And because he is Lord over death, we must make him Lord over our life. This sermon is about three points that we're going to talk about. First, what is death? What is it? Let's get our hands on it. Let's just strip away the veneer just for a little while. What is death? What does it really, it really mean? Number two, we're going to talk about what does God think about death? Is God immune to our suffering? Does he enter into it? Does he understand it? Is he a part of it? Or is death simply something we need to face on our own? And then finally, how is it that Jesus is Lord over death? But my premise is simple. Jesus is Lord over death, and so we must make him Lord over our life. Well, let's talk about this question. What is death? And I want to look at this passage because we see what's going on here is that this one, Lazarus, has died. Now, Lazarus, along with Mary and Martha, are friends of Jesus. The Bible doesn't speak much about Lazarus, though it speaks more about Mary and Martha. But we see that Jesus loved Lazarus. In fact, the, the sisters send a message, Lord, the one you love is sick. And this language is actually the only other place where we really see this kind of love expressed in the language is the love that Jesus has with the three, Peter, James, and John, his most intimate of friends. And so even though we don't know much about Lazarus, we know that he was a very intimate and close friend of Jesus. And so this one, Lazarus, is sick, and the girls send message to Jesus. Now, why do they send word to Jesus when he's far away? The answer is quite simple. They intuitively understand something that we know as well, that left to ourselves, we cannot ward off death. We cannot fight our death. I like what Woody Allen said. He says, look, I, you know, there's the problem with death. It's 100% fatal every single time. And death is universal, isn't it? Anybody ever heard of the second law of thermodynamics? Any scientists out there? Second law of thermodynamics. Energy moves to entropy. Order moves to disorder. Order moves to chaos. This is the very reason why I can help clean up my kid's room on Sunday, and I come back two days later, and the place is like a hurricane went through it. Because energy moves to entropy. Things break down. That's why we spend our time trying to mend our clothes, and mend our houses, and mend our cars, because things break down. Things fall apart. That's part of the natural order. See, because of that, we tend to think that death is a part of the natural order. But the scriptures tell us something else, that death is not natural, that death is not supposed to be. The second law of thermodynamics is not supposed to exist in the earth. In the Genesis story that we've been looking at, God creates man and woman in his image, in his own likeness, and he, gives, he makes them ruler over the earth. He gives them the power of God, the life of God within him, and imprints the law of God on their hearts. But God gives stipulations in that law. And one of them is that if they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they will surely die. You see, death is a consequence not of the natural order, but of disobedience. That decision made by Adam and Eve 
that decision that we make in our own lives to sin, there's a consequence for that, and that's death. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But we see that Jesus says something else about death that's very interesting. Lazarus falls, uh, uh, dies, and Jesus characterizes his death by saying this, that Lazarus is asleep. It's not dead in the sense he is dead, but Jesus wants to help us understand that death is an intermediate state, that there's something that lies on the other side of death. What lies on the other side of death? Jesus put it this way in John 5, 26. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. See, death is not a sort of turn out the lights and it's all over. Rather, there is a judgment that is to follow death. As Hebrews 9.27 said, just as man is, is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. See, I think that's why we have a problem with death because we intuitively know that there's got to be some sort of measurement for our life, how we lived our life on this earth. I remember as an 18-year-old kid, atheist kid, walking into a Bible study that my friends dragged me to, and I was asking all sorts of questions, and the Bible study guy finally uh, turned to me and he asked me a question, Carlos, when you die, why are you going to be able to go to heaven? And I gave the answer that I would, if I walked out onto the boardwalk and asked 90 people, 80 of them would give this answer, because I'm good enough. I'm a good person. I've done good things. There's only one problem. God's standard is not goodness. God's standard is perfection. A person once walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? How can I follow uh, you? How can I live according to the way I'm supposed to? And Jesus simply said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. Do this, and you will live. So we see that there is a test that all of us must face. Well, how would we fare if we had to take this test today? I'm going to give us a pop quiz. Imagine... If I was able to take your mind, all the thoughts that you had this week, all the secret thoughts of the mind that you have, all the things that you did, one by one, me included, and to flash them up on that video screen for all of us to see, would we have loved God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Would we have loved our neighbor as ourself? Well, wait a second, Carlos, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I mean, Hitler, Hitler's a bad person. It's not like I've murdered anyone or done anything. But Jesus' standard is perfection. He says in the scriptures that if you so much as have any anger in your heart to someone else, it's just like you killed them. Oh, wait, wait a second. Jesus, I'm a good person. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been faithful to my wife. You know, I haven't done anything like some of these other guys, these other people. But Jesus says his standard is perfection. If you've even had lust into, in your heart, toward another woman. It's like you've committed adultery with her in your heart. See, Jesus' standard is perfection. People ask me as a pastor, uh, do you believe in hell? The answer is yes, because if God is just, 
there must be a hell. There must be a place. Because who is going to pay for the sins of the world? Who is going to pay for my sins? The hatred I've had toward my brother. The hatred that we've had. The, the times when we've walked by someone, when we knew we should have done something. Who are going to pay for those sins? You know, God is many things, but God is not arbitrary. What he says, he always does. And the one who sins is the one who will die. In 1974, in the Changxi province of China, there were some villagers who were digging. They were digging a well for their little village, and they hit something in the ground. And as they sort of brushed aside the dirt, they discovered a figure. It was a, Jap a Chinese soldier made out of terracotta. And they realized that there was another one right next to it, and another one. And they thought they were onto something, and so they called the Chinese authorities, and the Chinese sent out archaeologists to kind of look at this find to discover what they had found. And what they discovered was what we know as the terracotta army. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's, uh, it's uh, quite a picture. It's the army of Qin Qing Huang, who was the first emperor of China. Emperor Huang uh, realized that he was uh, mortal. He had ruled over China, but he realized that he could not continue to rule over China. At some point, he would die. And so he instructed 700,000 of his followers to come together and to construct a giant army of terracotta warriors. None could look the same, as well as chariots, horses, musicians, noblemen and officials, an entire army of terracotta soldiers. Maybe some, you've seen some of them in the, in, the, in the picture. Because Huang wanted to go ahead and have this army that would go before him into death, that would help him to conquer in death as much in life, that he could take all that he had in life and he would be able to rule in the afterlife as well. I think that's a beautiful picture for what many of us hope for to do today. Because the question is, what is the army that will go before us to ward off death? Who are those soldiers? Maybe you're a good person. You pride yourself on being a good person. You've done good deeds. You live a good life. You don't cheat on your taxes. You're religious. Hey, maybe even you're a pastor. And you're slowly crafting soldier by soldier, chariot by chariot, because you know that the day is approaching and you need the army who will go before you. He will vanquish death and give you life. Maybe you have a good reputation. You're a great parent. You raised your children well. You sacrificed for them. You gave your life to them. And there they are, the army that you've created that will tip the scales in your favor. But the truth of the matter is, no army is big enough. You can't create enough soldiers. We all must go before the judgment seat, and the one who sins is the one who will die. Where do I go when I die? It depends. Left to ourself, the answer is hell. Well, the question we have to ask then is the second point, well, what does God think about all this? Is this really fair? I mean, does God care about death? The answer can be found in this passage because we discover that God doesn't dodge death. He doesn't push it to the side. He doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to face it square on in this passage. Notice that Jesus receives word that uh, Lazarus is sick. Yet strangely enough, this one he loves, he doesn't go to him. 
Rather, he stays. Why does he stay? Because he's waiting for Lazarus to die. Jesus is setting up a direct confrontation with death. And finally, when he does die, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus wants to confront death, and he wants to show us how he deals with death. But before he deals with death, before he goes to the tomb, he first deals with these sisters, Mary and Martha. It's interesting, the passage is Jesus is walking, and Martha hears word that Jesus is coming. So what does she do? She gets up, and she runs to Jesus. And what does she say? Lord, if you had been here, my father would not have died. Excuse me, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Do you hear that hint of accusation in her voice? Lord, where, where were you? I called for you. You didn't come. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But there's also that glimmer of hope, isn't there? But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, Jesus is reaching out to Martha and meeting her in her need. What does Martha need right now? She needs truth. She needs to know that the death of her brother Lazarus wasn't for naught, that all of this is just a waste of time, that there's something beyond the grave, that there's some sort of hope. She needs to know the truth. And Jesus gives her the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus meets Martha in her need. But then Mary comes along right afterwards. And what does she do? She says the exact same thing. Same thing in the Greek. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus' response is remarkably different to Mary than it is to Martha. Jesus wept. Jesus had no words for Mary at that time because words were not enough for Mary. Martha may have needed truth, but what did Mary need? Mary needed tears. Mary needed Jesus to come into her midst, to come alongside of her, to identify her with her in her suffering, and to suffer with her as well. Martha needed truth, but Mary needed tears. And so that's what Jesus is. You know, the beauty of Jesus Christ, who is God's son, is that God is both. We not only need truth, but we also need tears. See, some of us have been there, haven't we? With Mary and Martha, we know their story. We know their emotions because we've had people who are close to us, who have died in our midst. Our brother, our father, our sister, our mother. And truth isn't enough, is it? We need tears. We need to know that God can come alongside of us, identify with us in our suffering. You know, there will come a time, save for the resurrection and Christ coming back, when Leellen will die or I will die. I'll either be at Leellen's casket or she'll be at mine. And she'll weep at mine and I'll weep at hers. But you know, right then and there, tear, truth is not what I need. I need tears. I need a God who can identify with me in my suffering. 
But you know, tears aren't enough either, are there? They're people that have come to us and they've, all they do is they give us truth when we don't need truth. No, we need more than truth. We need tears, but we also need truth. We need to know that there's something greater than this life, somebody who can take us past death to the world beyond. And Jesus gives us tears and truth. I am the resurrection and the life. God cares about death because God cares about our lives. Jesus is Lord over death, and because he is Lord over death, he can be Lord over life and meet us at our point of need. Well, we've talked a little bit about death. We've talked a little bit about how God feels about death. Now I want to talk about how Jesus deals with death itself. Because something happens when Jesus turns from talking with Mary and Martha and he turns to the grave. The scriptures say here in verse 38 that Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. Now notice those words, once more deeply moved. Same words that were used just a little while ago when Jesus was deeply moved at seeing Mary. Unfortunately, the NIV translates it the same way. There are other translations that don't. But those words are different. That word deeply moved when he looks at the tomb, the literal translation of it would be very similar to a horse that is snorting and that is pawing, that's agitated, that's angry. See, when Jesus looks at Mary and is deeply moved, he's deeply moved to sorrow. But when, he's deeply, when he looks at the tomb, he's deeply moved to anger. Jesus is furious as he looks at the tomb. Why is Jesus furious? Why is he deeply moved to this agitation? Here's the reason why. Many of us have children. I have four of my own. And think about it. The ones that you love more than anything, that you pour your heart, that you love. What if I was to tell you that someone was trying to hurt your child? Someone was coming alongside and trying to either get them hooked on drugs or to get them do something to them or abuse them. How would you feel? exactly the same way I would. You would get mad. You would get angry. You would get furious. You would want to go take somebody's head off, wouldn't you? That's the way Jesus is feeling right now as he comes to the tomb. He's deeply moved. He's angry at death. He wants to kill death. But death will not go so easily because the law says that the wages of sin is death and the one who sins is the one who will die. See, this whole point of Jesus' ministry is pivotal. There's a reason that the disciples said to him, look, you can't go back to Judea. Last time you were there, they tried to kill you. If you go back again, they're going to kill you. This point right here, in fact, it shows that after Jesus heals Lazarus, that immediately the Pharisees began plotting how to kill Jesus. This path right here, that Jesus takes, if he does something here with Lazarus, is going to have lasting consequences for him. See, it's death versus Christ. Winner take all. And there's this standoff. Death is saying, if you raise Lazarus from the dead, you will have to die. If you bring him out of the tomb, you will have to go down. If you raise him up, you must go down. If you take off his grave clothes, you are going to have to put them on yourself. And how does Jesus respond? Lazarus, come out. Take off his grave clothes and let him go. The path of Jesus was set right then and there 
as he continues to head toward Judea, the path that would take him to the trial and to the cross and ultimately to the tomb. But you see, Jesus is different than any other person because everyone else went into that tomb because they had to. Jesus walked into that tomb because he wanted to. And anyone else that has been taken out of that tomb is because someone else has called them out. But Jesus is the only one who has come out on his own. As the scriptures say, even just one chapter before, no one takes my life from me, Jesus says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus is the only one who is Lord over death. And Jesus was resurrected out of that tomb and appeared to over 500 people over a period of 40 days and ascended to heaven. And 2,000 years later, we're meeting in a room because of that fact right there. The resurrection proves that Christ is Lord over death. And because he is, we must make him Lord of our life. Where do I go when I die? The answer is simple. It depends. If you trust in yourself, building an army big enough, strong enough to go ahead of you to defeat death, you will ultimately lose. But if you trust in Christ, the one who is raised from the dead, you too can have life in him. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of life. What would your life look like if you trusted Christ? I want to talk about not only for the future, but about this life right here. We often ask the question, is there life after death? Well, I want to ask the question, is there life before death? It was William Wallace in the movie uh, Braveheart that was attributed this quote that every man dies, but not every man lives. There's huge ramifications for settling this question of where do you go when you die? See, if we put our trust in Christ, if we know that there's victory ultimately in the grave and through the grave, we can live with confidence in this world. See, so much of our life, if we're building an army of our own, is all about self-preservation. Protect myself from being hurt. And we're feverishly building away an army again and again and again. There's a big difference between living and existing. That's existing. But if we know that our Redeemer lives and that we have life in Him, that we can turn and have life. You know, a friend of ours, I was struck, an acquaintance actually, recently, very uh, strong businessman, very gifted, captain of industry, made a lot of money, and was doing very well for himself. But recently the economy turned. Things grew difficult. And so unbeknownst to anyone else, his fortune was ebbing away. And he made the decision, unbeknownst to anyone, to go ahead and try to end his life. Thankfully, it didn't work. He wasn't able to. Why would he do that? Because he was building an army, and he watched it get knocked down, soldier after soldier after soldier. To live for this army is to live a life of fear. But if we make Christ our resurrection and our life, we can have confidence. We can put our work in the right place. You know, in this economy, many of us are discovering how fragile our hopes and dreams and businesses and nest eggs are. 
we can instead enjoy the success that God has given us, but not be capsized by our failures, because our hope is in Christ. It's not in ourselves. We can live with confidence. Two other things. We can love with boldness. In this life we have, we protect ourselves from one another, don't we? We insulate ourselves from hurt. The most dangerous things in this world aren't things. They're people. Nobody that can hurt you like people, particularly those who are close to you. And if all, this, all we have is this life, we can't reach out to one another. But if our life is found in Jesus Christ, our resurrection and our life, we can love boldly. We can sacrifice. We can take risks with people willing to be hurt because our hope is not in them. Our hope is in Christ. We can enjoy the fruits of relationship but not be capsized by our failures. Finally, we can live with focus. If we're building our own army, we're focused on all the wrong things. Liel and I had the opportunity this past Sunday to be in Orlando for a church planners conference. And at one time we were sitting around a table with a guy who was going to plant a church in Berlin, an Australian who was planning a church in Canada, and an American couple who, who was in the Czech Republic planning churches. You know, as I looked around, I thought to myself, this is unbelievable. These guys aren't in it for the money, certainly not in it for the fame. It's a very good chance that they will experience heartbreak and frustration and failure. Why are they doing it? Because their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. See, we can focus on the things that are important in life because we know the one who is the author of life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He comes to give us life in the world after, and he comes to give us life in the world here. What would it look like if we were a church made up of those type of people? Somebody just walked in, saw people who were living with confidence and boldness, who were loving one another in a risky way, who had the priorities of their life straight. What a compelling witness that would be for this area. What a powerful. Would someone want to be part of that group? I know I would. And that is what God calls us to do and be. And so my premise is simple, and I hope I've proved it to you. But now we must respond. If Jesus Christ is Lord over death, we must make him Lord over life. Are you still struggling to build that army, terracotta soldiers, one by one by one? Trust in Christ. Make him the resurrection and your life. Lord over your life, and you will discover that you have an army that is far more powerful, more stronger, and loving than you could ever have. Are you a believer in Christ? Set your feet firmly on Jesus. Put your hope on nothing less. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. By his grace, let us do this together. Pray in Christ.